My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Today on Irishman in America, the Sunday Business Post, Marion McKeown joins me as always to talk about what's been happening over beyond. We have been having these chats for nearly two years. It's hard to believe. And as crazy as things got during that time, did you ever foresee a time when we would be talking about one legislative pillar of the government losing the run of itself, Roe v. Wade being overturned, the freedom of the press, single-sex marriage and contraception all appearing to be up for review. With the January 6th hearings producing their most shocking testimony yet from Cassidy Hutchinson, Ghislaine Maxwell sentenced and gun laws across the country being liberalised, is there too much happening for people to take it in over there, Marion? I really get a sense, and I, I jump between Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, where I am at the moment, and I, I'm heading to Wyoming next and then Texas. And, you know, so even, I like, I, I do jump around between very liberal states and very conservative states. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting the same sense of bewilderment almost everywhere I go. And I've got to say, I'm feeling it myself because nothing is the same. The Supreme Court, you know, the, the, was a sort of a ballast of consistency in, in an America that was really becoming very, very unmoored. And it was almost like an anchor that mm. kept the ship grounded, you know, and, and now the Supreme Court is unmoored. And, you know, and I don't say that lightly. It's not just because of the Roe v. Wade reversal. It's that this Supreme Court, with a, a very conservative majority of six to three, and that won't change any time in the foreseeable future, um, has taken it upon itself to enforce a sort of a very right-wing, patriarchal, um, very conservative and culturally ideological um, viewpoint and on the rest of the country. And it is doing so by, by basically overturning laws that were settled laws for half a century and making decisions as it just made today about the Environmental Protection Agency, where it says arbitrarily, we're introducing a new doctrine and it's called the significant question doctrine. And it means that any big questions in America can't be decided by agencies. They have to go back to Congress. Now, nobody had heard of this doctrine before, as Elena Kagan pointed out, but the, she's a, one, of the, one of the liberal minority justices on the court. But it, it's decided, no, the, the EPA can't regulate um, emissions from power plants. They don't have the power to do that. They've got to go back to Congress to do that. You know, it, it, it's these sort of outlandish decis decisions at a time when 
climate change is producing such visible results in America that they're saying, no, 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 you EPA, you leave those power plants alone. They can emit whatever the hell they want. It's not up to you to regulate them unless Congress says that you can. Well, what is the function of an, an, an agency like the Environmental Protection Agency if it can't protect the environment? But mm. this will also have huge implications for things like the Consumer Protection Agency, you know, which, which really tends to, as the title suggests, to protect consumers against, you know, basically bigger companies and whatever and banks and financial institutions that gouge them or exploit them or whatever, that, you know, that law will be applied also to that agency to say sorry this isn't a significant question you know we we um, we, we have to basically you, you can't um decide this you've got to get permission from congress so it totally neuters the ability of all of the agencies that have protected american citizens over the years and says no 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 and you know of course the presumption is going to be that very soon there will be a republican dominated congress and, you know, the chances of getting um, additional powers for agencies are just restoring the powers they believe they already had will be very, very slim. So, you know, th- th- as I say, that that's just the latest um, of the Supreme Court rulings. And so we're in a situation in America where the country is absolutely chaotic as a result of, of and I'm talking about the laws in 50 different states, there's chaos as a result of Roe v. Wade. And I'll just give you one example. And it would be Mississippi, um, which is where the, the um, you know, the, the case that that um, was brought before the court, it was Jobs versus Jackson Health. Um, yes. And it was it was a Mississippi case where they wanted to introduce a 15 week abortion ban. And the court upheld that rule, but also at the same time overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, at the moment in Mississippi, you have three different laws. OK, so one law is the one which would be the 15-week abortion ban. There's another law which has been suspended, which would provide for a six-week abortion ban. And there's also a trigger law, which is banning virtually every procedure except in the case of the the threats of health, no, the life of the mother, not just the health of the mother. So you've got one state, three different laws. Which law are are, um, abortion providers supposed to choose? Are they supposed to say, okay, we'll go with the 15-week one? Or are they supposed to say, okay, we'll go with the six-week one? Or are they supposed to say, no, no, sorry, we can't do anything? And it seems at the moment that they're saying we can't do anything because the law is so uncertain. They don't want to find themselves criminally prosecuted as a result. So, you know, for for a Supreme Court, like certainty, certainty and reliability and clarity in the law are the three things that every person, every country in the world needs. And it's just gone because the courts want to enforce their ideology on on the country at large at any cost. And, you know, today we also had uh, Joe Biden talking about how he would um, he would support, you know, a carve out exception to using the filibuster to to codify the abortion rights in America. I can guarantee you if that happens and it's very, very unlikely because it's it's a 50 50 Senate evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who are both Democrats, have already done this mealy mouthed excuse for why they won't support carve outs to the filibuster because it protects democracy, even though America is clearly in an era of minority rule. Um, and but even if even if they did join the 50, which they won't, um, it's very likely that the Supreme Court, this case will be then referred back to the Supreme Court to say, 
does the federal government have the right to introduce a law that will be enforced in all the states? It's very likely that they would overturn that law and any attempt to codify the, the, the abortion rules. Marion, it's a long time ago, but I did study yeah. US politics in University College Dublin and the Federalist Papers specifically. Yeah. And within that, and it's drilled into my brain and etched into my memory is the uh, checks and balances and the, the mm-hmm. tyranny of the few. Surely we are looking at a situation where the checks and balances of the other arms of this government come into play. Uh, I've never seen a more classic example of an overreach from one specific part of the government uh, delegitimizing itself in the process. Where are the checks and balances on this? Or has the Supreme Court just exposed the lack of them? Well, I think that that's a really important and actually a a frightening point because the checks and balances system in America now is completely out of whack. There there is no effective and, and you need this for democracy to survive. So you have a court that's making decisions entirely based on its own ideology mm-hmm. it's yes. religious and conservative ideology with no regard to what the, the impact of overturning laws um willy-nilly to suit its it's because this is what's happening to suit its own ideology is having on the country but also on the court's reputation you know the supreme court about just before before Amy Coney Barrett was was appointed to the Supreme Court in 2020, it had a kind of the, the public trust was at about 64 percent. About two thirds of Americans said we really trust the Supreme Court. Now it's down to about 25 percent. And you know, if the public doesn't have faith in its institutions, this this is really the start of the crumble of the of, of the edifice of democracy. And then you also have let's not forget a Congress that is so politically partisan and gridlocked that it will not look at the best interests of the people. It's all about, certainly for the Republicans, political survival and power grabbing. And then you have an executive, as in the White House, where we saw what happened under Donald Trump. And, you know, I was at a speech last night that was given by Liz Cheney, and I spoke to several people afterwards who were so furious at her and who who were just outraged um that that she had the temerity to challenge her republican president so it's it's really reached a point now where politics and political affiliation is everything it trumps democracy it trumps basically the constitutional rights it's 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 just a really worrying place Hmm. and i'm finding being in america at the moment honestly just quite bewildering and and you know, you're coming up against rage on on both sides, um, and frustration and uncertainty, and you know, a, a against the backdrop of a very near coup that we saw on January sixth, which is still being denied by large swathes of the Republican Party, and and you know, as, as Liz Cheney pointed out, attempts to in- silence and intimidate witnesses who are who would otherwise possibly have come before the committee. It's it's, you know, I wow. I think America is in a really bad place at the moment. Well, we're going to loop back around when we cover all the topics that we have to sift through. And of course, the extended cut of our conversation will include everything from the Ghislaine Maxwell sentencing to R. Kelly sentencing to Mm -hmm. some really tragic news of 53 dead in San Antonio in a smuggling tragedy and more. But we need to get to those hearings uh, because 
that is the backdrop. And I guess the dust has now settled on the revelations contained within Cassidy Hutchins' testimony. And a couple of things happened right away, Marion. There was attempts made to discredit her, which you would expect Mm. to take place. Uh, There was attempts to discredit what she had said, including... Uh, I guess there was word circulating that there was two Secret Service men who would take the stand to say that her account of Trump, as hilarious as it sounds, attempting to take the wheel of his limo uh, was factually incorrect and didn't take place. What have you witnessed in relation to this this side of things that essentially calling her out as a liar? Uh, or is it understood? Well, she was under oath and she was very close to the action that this is this is relayed information from within uh, the inner circle. Okay, I, I think it's probably useful for the gang out there to know a bit more about Cassidy Hutchins. Okay, she's a 25, 26-year-old um, young Republican. Now, just to put into context what it took for her to testify and do what she did, she... Cassidy Hutchins started off as a a congressional aide to Steve Scalise, who is the third most powerful um, Republican in in the House of Congress. Okay, and he's also one of the most deeply conservative. She then moved and did an internship with Ted Cruz. Okay, another deeply conservative senator from Texas. And before becoming um, Mark Meadows's legislative assistant and then very quickly becoming his top aide and somebody who he found indispensable. Now, the White House is actually very small. The West Wing is tiny. It's a rabbit hutch. And so it seems like, you know, when we see it on TV, it's this huge, big place. In fact, the whole area, like if if you are in the um, press room, you can run well, you could run to the Oval Office if you if you if you were able to do it in in probably fifteen seconds. You could certainly walk there in thirty. Uh, and down from the Oval Office, just a few feet away, are all these offices: Jared Kushner's, Mark Meadows, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, it, it, the corridors are so narrow that you could hear if the doors are open, you can hear voices clearly coming from any one of those rooms. Um, and and you know, so she just she was really in the thick of things but for her to come up and testify as she did she has now cut herself off from any future career in the republican party certainly for the time being this was a woman who i was told arrived in at six o'clock in the morning didn't leave until after midnight was ferociously hard working was a hundred percent committed to serving the trump administration um and and as i said who mark meadows he wouldn't go anywhere without her she was basically his brain trust and she you know she kept everything she kept all the plates in the air she was hugely respected by republicans um within the white house by trump loyal within the White House as somebody who did her job and went the extra mile. So for her to turn around and testify as she did, knowing that all of those friends she had, knowing that her social circle probably, knowing that her career have all been irretrievably turned on their head as a result, I think that just took enormous courage. Um, And, you know, and so for why would you go to the January 6th committee and appear and lie under oath. It it does not make sense from everything that everybody has said about her, that she was 
always I mean you can see from pictures of Trump and events and rallies and whatever she's always in the background she's always standing beside one of his press aides or Mark Meadows or whatever she was everywhere she was one of the few people within the White House who who really did attend everything because she the chief of staff is is the person who's closest to Trump and as the famously incompetent Mark Meadows chief of staff it everybody believed she was doing the the lion's share of the work and basically keeping him propped up so let's let's get back to to what she said um now she claims that the the um anthony ornato who was the the um he's a very interesting character the secret service is supposed to be entirely politically neutral now everyone knows that's a myth the secret service tends to prefer republican presidents and they 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 just do military and law enforcement in america skews republican and and that is just a, a long established fact but um ornato became much closer with Trump than most Secret Service leaders. He was the head of his detail at one point, and he did what has never really been done before. He was promoted by the president to leave the Secret Service and to join his political machine. So he crossed that Rubicon, which Secret Service people never do. Presidents can promote them to like, you know, within the Secret Service, but they never basically poach them to come on their political teams. But this is what he did. So he became a deputy chief of staff or NATO and as a result he again was he um because he was deputy chief of staff to Mark Meadows again he and um Cassidy Hutchinson would have spent an enormous amount of time in the same area in the same rooms on the same planes so it it seems that what she said under oath was she was clear that she wasn't there, that she wasn't in the SUV. It wasn't the beast, by the way, as a lot of people are saying, that she was in the SUV. Um, or I beg your pardon, she said that she was not in the SUV when this incident happened, but Ornato was, and he told her about it afterwards. So she was clear that it was hearsay um, and that she was going on what he told her. She had no first-hand knowledge. Now the Secret Service, he is saying through spokespeople and sources and contacts that she's lying, that he never said it, and that he and Bobby Engel, who was the Secret Service guy who, who Ornato had told her, um, was Trump went for went to put his his hands around his throat um in with in the car um so what's happening now is they are both saying through sources that they are happy to testify under oath that this never happened that this is all a lie well the point is that if it's a lie um it, where does this leave Ornato did he lie did he make it up when he told um Hutchinson and secondly let's wait and see if they do testify under oath if they are prepared to like she was to come out publicly and testify under oath and, and be questioned about it whether or not um that ornato told her this and indeed whether or not it happened and you know in a way this is getting too much attention because it was hearsay but the fact that the secret service has not denied that trump was determined to go to the capitol and several secret service sources have said yeah that happened he was furious when they wouldn't take him so the the the, the sort of the broad thrust of it whether 
these pieces were exaggerated or whatever. But the broad thrust of it is true that Trump, knowing the crowd was armed, knowing that they were going to the Capitol Hill, that he had sicked a basically a armed up mob on the Capitol um, and that he was determined to go there as well. The Secret Service has not denied that. Uh, mm. And I think that that's the really damning thing. And what was he going to do when he got there? Was he going to go into the House of Congress? Was he going to go into the chamber and rip the, 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 the votes out of Mike Pence's hands? What did he intend to do? Because certainly if he was there, the ho- the, the chaos is, is actually even more unimaginable than it already was. There is so, an argument that if he was there, it might not have happened. I'm just going to throw that out there, that if he was there, I mean, people wouldn't behave that way around the president. Now, I am throwing that out there, Marianne, because it has to be said that maybe it would have been a bit more decorum to the march up there, shake your fist uh, thing that, you know, he wasn't saying, let's drag this guy up by the hair and hang him ourselves. That has to be said. Um, I also think that you mentioned last week on the show, people can go back and hear it, that you suggested that he may use a defense that he was not in his right mind. And everything that Cassidy Hutchinson said led me to believe that actually there's quite a bit to that, that a kind of a red mist or I don't know if red mist is the right term to use here, but a, a mania had descended upon the man because all we're hearing is that Every single person he encountered told him this is either bullshit or there is no evidence to support what you'd like to be true. And every time that happened, he either slung his lunch at the wall or just moved on to the next person who might support the conspiracy. Uh, The lunging for people's throats and trying to grab the hold of the steering wheel, it is the kind of stuff that gets you, you know, seen by a doctor. Uh, am I? Are we heading closer down the path to the ultimate revelation of the committee being that this man had lost the plot completely while in office? No, I don't think so. To get back to your first point, which I think is a really interesting one, is had he been there, would would there have been the same chaos? We'll never know, I suppose, is the answer. But he did say to the crowd to go to the Capitol and fight like hell. Now, that was, they were his words when he was giving that speech on the ellipse and said, I'll be going there with you. And with that, the the the, the mob and, and a lot of them were already there, let's not forget, because there was, it certainly seems, prior planning. And and everything that the committee has revealed so far, there were people who had descended on the capital from the, the Proud Boys and, and um the three percenters, they had arrived at ten o'clock that morning. Um, his his speech wasn't made until midday. Uh, so there were people already going to the capital, which is where the question of the degree of collusion and coordination that was going on, and that, that hasn't been definitively, and I don't know if it ever will be definitively answered by the committee, but it certainly seems that you had, you know, if, if you look at what um, Cassidy Hutchinson said, she said that she was walking Rudy Giuliani out, um, and he's, he had said to her four days before January 6th, oh, January 6th is going to be, wow, it's going to be a huge day. It's going to be amazing. There were clear plans. Donald Trump didn't just in a moment of madness sick that crowd on the Capitol. There was already, it seems, from 
everything that the committee has revealed, a clear plan in place that this was how they were going to disrupt the vote, that this is how they would stop it from happening, that they would send a gang down there, a mob basically, who were who were armed, including Proud Boys, including other groups, mil- militias, and, and that that would cause such chaos and havoc that it, it would stop the counting of the votes. And that is precisely what happened, except for Mike Pence went back into the chamber hours and hours later to continue the job he was sent there to do. So I I think had Trump been there in that frame of mind where he was absolutely, and you know, I don't think he lost the plot. I think this is a man who knew he had lost and who knew he had lost the election. And that's what was making him so angry. I don't think that he was unhinged. I don't think he was mentally, you know, impaired in any way. I think, yes, he had a ferocious tantrum, but he does that on a three three times a day basis. Uh, Mm. He was told by enough people, not just by Bill Barr, his attorney general, not just by um, Bill Sapien, his campaign manager, not just by everybody who worked for the campaign, all the lawyers, not just by Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, but basically he was he was told comprehensively and by 60 different courts that there was no evidence to support widespread fraud, that he had lost the election, but he couldn't cope with that. So he had to find a way of making people distrust the results so that he wouldn't be a loser. And he also then saw an opportunity, of course, Trump being Trump, to embark on a bit of a grift on the side. And that was the 250 million Stop the Steal steal fundraiser that, that he managed to con people with. Because if he admitted he'd lost, he wouldn't have raised $250 million. He mm. wouldn't have got that money. That's sort of a golden handshake on the way out the door. Yeah, and the longer he kept it, purposes. and the yeah. longer he kept it going, the more, the more money, money that came it in. made. Exactly. So, yeah. so you've been saying that quite a while now. That that was the that was the grift that he had figured out. You yeah. believe, and that actually it was all a stalling tactic. And this idea, we'll, when we get this in court, is bollocks. That it's actually just about we can still, you know, accumulate cash in this account when yeah. as you said all the way along he had an he had major financial issues on the horizon for himself yeah but i don't think that was the only purpose i think he wanted he was desperate to hang on to power he has no respect for democracy we've seen that he is an authoritarian figure and he believed and he believed all along that these challenges would get to the supreme court and that his judges, as he called them, as in Kavanaugh, um, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, um, and obviously Clarence Thomas, whose wife was running around everywhere saying the election was stolen. Um, and, and obviously, of course, Samuel Leto, he believed that his judges would find for him and would say, yes, that this, this election was stolen because he wasn't even interested in the finer points and the technicalities. You know, he saw that George W. Bush, the Supreme Court, had basically handed him the presidency back in 2000, even though Al Gore had won the popular vote narrowly and there were still votes being counted. He saw that the Supreme Court stopped that count, which was an appalling decision by Mm. the Supreme Court back in 2000. And he thought that his judges would do the same for him. So he thought not only would he be able to remain in the White House, but that he would be able to make all this money on the side. Um, And then when it seemed that that was being threatened, the last ditch attempt was he believed that if he went to the Capitol and if the mob went to the Capitol, that they would stop 
Mike Pence from certifying Joe Biden as president and that there would still be more time, there'd be more time bought to throw it back to the states. He believed that the, the, the Republican legislators in, in about seven or eight swing states would overturn the slate of electors that had been duly elected and would send fake electors to Washington for him. I mean, the extent and the complexity of this scam, you know, it's it's not the blusterings of a madman. He tried to get, he strong arms the Department of Justice. He tried to appoint an attorney general who was going to send a letter to all those states telling them they could not certify Biden's electors. He went to Congress and he got all his congressional buddies to say the election had been stolen and to foment outrage in their communities. And as I said, Department of Justice, Congress, the, the Republican electors in the states, the governors in the states, the lieutenant um, generals, the secretary of states within the states, he went to all of them and tried to bully them into refusing to certify Biden's victory. So as I say, this was, a, and then finally culminating with January 6th. So this wasn't, a, 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 like, the impression that a lot of Republicans are trying to give is that this was just a spontaneous combustion on January 6th. It was an outpouring of frustration by Trump supporters, and it was entirely un unseeable and unknowable. The opposite is true. This was all meticulously planned. When one thing didn't work, they tried another and another and another. And the end goal was always to keep Trump in the White House, even though they knew he had lost the election. Yeah, it's a, you, you have to have the plot to lose the plot, I guess. Exactly. I really want to talk about two more things here. First of all, the intimidation of witnesses cooperating with the House committee. But we have to do that over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Liz Cheney on Tuesday revealed that there have been attempts to intimidate witnesses cooperating with the House committee investigating January 6th and signaled that the panel plans to share additional details at future hearings. I want to ask, Marion, if this, now this obstruction of justice, could actually be a concrete thing that they can get him on and get his crew on uh, in the second half, in part two of our discussion this Friday. You can gain access to Excel episodes every single week. Three, in fact. Absolutely amazing coaching from Sonia O'Sullivan every Wednesday if you want to run a half marathon. And the best interviews available on the internet today. George Hamilton this Sunday. I mean, it sounds like too good to be true. It is all there on patreon.com for a fiver a month. Come over and join us. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.